The Guardian. It's day six of the Sydney Siege Inquest, and I'm here with not Bridie Jabour, who's away, but Monica Tan, who's filling her shoes. And so, Monica, you uh, manned the live blog all through day six of today's um, inquest. It was your first time in there. What, what, what struck you about it? Um, I think that there, what was interesting was probably, or most interesting, was the statement from Sylvia Martin. And just to be clear, Sylvia Martin was involved uh, in assessing Monis before a, a 2011 legal case, the details of which, unfortunately, we can't discuss in detail. And I think the reason why it was the most interesting is that she wasn't a lawyer. And we've been hearing a lot of lawyers throughout the inquest, and they tend to give quite dry descriptions. You know, they stick to the facts, whereas I found that Martin gave a lot of colour, a lot of feeling, and we probably... We probably, I think that we, there was a lot, we, we kind of have a strong impression of who Monis is from her. Yeah, I think not coincidentally, um, Jeremy Gormley, who's the senior counsel, the kind of the, the senior counsel assisting on the whole inquest, really seemed to uh, struggle a little bit in, <laughs> in, in examining Miss um, Martin. Yeah, so um, what were some of the things that we learned from her today? So Sylvia Martin was a social worker. I think she basically had the best summary of Monis that we've heard so far. She seemed to be the most astute judge of character of him, um, of the people who we've seen um, up on the stand. And I think one of the things she said was that he had the image of someone who needed to feel important. He was someone who needed to be admired. And I think the key quote was um, that he felt, it felt like he was the hero in his own story which I thought was a really accurate description of a guy who I think we've all been struggling um, to make sense of. The other thing I thought was interesting was that she was the first person to, uh, to really pin him as a manipulative person. Everyone so far seems to sort of either buy into his, um, into kind of the fact that he's a little bit unhinged, he is not quite in touch with reality, but she... I think he's the first person who saw in his actions a bit of a method. Because she saw some method in his madness and saw that actually he's trying to pull the wool over my eyes here. And she said it. She said he was a, a manipulative person. I think what was interesting there as well is that she not only said that he attempted to manipulate her regarding this legal matter um, in terms of you know her impression of the other the other party. He was very careful to attempt to not make that manipulation too obvious. I mean, you know, that's that's kind of very calculating to be conscious, to be actively trying to manipulate someone, but also be very subtle in that and be careful to not seem obvious that you are manipulating that I think person. It, I think it plays into this bigger question that we were wrestling with last week um, when we saw different psychologists who, um, who Monas was seeing at the same time who would come and give give very starkly different account, accounts of the man they were treating. So some would say, oh, he's definitely schizophrenic, he definitely hallucinates. The, and the other one would say, I saw no evidence evidence of that, he's depressed, he has anxiety. Um, and it seemed this kind of, he seemed like such an, such an enigma in that way. Um, and it, it was never clear whether, you know, this is just a man with a lot of different sort of personalities, um, you know, playing out at different times, or whether he is genuinely trying to manipulate people. And it's that, that word manipulate, I think, that really struck, struck me today. I also noticed um, everyone used the word um, articulate, kind of well-spoken. Polite. We're getting a lot of courteous. As well. Look, the other thing Sylvia Martin said today, which I thought was, was very interesting, was that, um, and this had to be drawn out of her as well. It, well. it didn't come up in the initial questioning, but um, the coroner did ask about it. And it was, it was a few words that she had scrawled down in her notes when she was interviewing one of the parties who uh, Monis was involved in this legal dispute with. And uh, this person had described Monis as being um, 
someone who wanted to be a martyr and who held um, extreme beliefs. And I think the exact words were something like, you know, he wants to do it for Islam or something like that. Um, and again, that's the first time we've kind of heard some sort of vague reference to, you know, martyrdom or the idea that Monas would do something in the name of, do some sort of violent or spectacular act in the name of Islam, which I think is, is, is notable. Yeah, we should add, though, that when she did go back to Monas and ask him about, you know, his feelings about being a martyr, he seemed to basically, she couldn't recall in exact details what he said, but her impression was that he didn't really see himself as a martyr and that any any use of the word martyr would be more in reference to him feeling like he was really important, uh, he, uh, very self-aggrandizing, but not necessarily someone who would be willing to give up his life. Yeah, and I'm really struggling actually to figure out how much weight to, to kind of to give this idea that, that, you know, he at least gave this other party the impression that he wanted to be a martyr. And I saw that it, 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 was, it was mentioned in our story and it led the Daily Telegraph story as well. So it's obviously, you know, a term with a lot of currency. And, and I wonder, um, I wonder, given that, whether Jeremy Gormley had deliberately decided not to focus on it in his questioning. It had to be Michael Barnes who who went back to Sylvia Martin and said, hey, actually, what about this in your statement? And um, I've, I've been thinking the past few days that Gormley's been really careful to distance the idea, uh, distance Monas from, from Islam, from the Muslim community, and he sort of regularly pivots back towards the you know long list of mental illnesses that Monas suffered, and I, I wonder if it's sort of a subplot, but I wonder whether um, you know whether whether Gormley is sort of deliberately trying to steer us towards um, you know one of the conclusions that he'll try to draw out of the inquest, which was that Monas was mentally ill, and you know that was the kind of whatever driver he had for doing the siege. Um, you know, it was born out of this illness rather than out of um, a devotion to Islam or a particular interpretation of that faith. So I did want to ask you, I noticed that with all the witnesses who who go to the stand, they do ask them about what Monas was wearing. So can you explain a little bit about the significance of that? Yeah, it's a really good observation, actually. Um, I think the last, you're right, it's become every day and we get different answers. We get a sense that sometimes he's in ro- uh, robes, other times he's in Western clothes. It, it feeds into this idea that this man's almost sort of um, he, he, he can never you can never really get a sense of of which monas you're going to be meeting. Is it going to be the erratic monas, the polite one, the the ayatollah, the the kind of the poet? Um, but I think today definitely uh, had the, the the very best monas outfit, um, <laughs> which was and Monica, I know you I know you you wrote this down. So did I, and I I, I think you should read it out. Okay, so we had um, Sylvia Martin first up who mentioned uh, Monas wearing a cream-coloured suit with vertical black stripes. Um, Her exact quote was, he was in the waiting room and I noticed his suit. His suit was startling. It was a cream-coloured suit with vertical black stripes. It was outstanding. And then his lawyer followed it up um, a couple of witnesses later and said he he too noticed that he was wearing this kind of extraordinary ostentatious suit and... He said he looked like something out of a 1930s gangster film. And he said he was an unusual man. I really re- kind of remember that statement and as well. And, you know, there's something just so evocative of, about that image of, of Manharon Monas, you know, um, clean-shaven, clean-cut, appearing for this legal matter, you know, in this ridiculous suit. I mean, this was a guy who, even when he was trying to kind of fit into sort of the West or fit into, you know, Western culture, he had a particular kind of modest way of going about it, which was which was startling and a little bit ridiculous and over the top and self-important and all of these things we keep hearing about him. 
So I've noticed throughout the inquest, we we haven't really heard a lot from close friends of Monis, but do you think you could talk a little bit about why is it, you know, who is this man who doesn't seem to have a lot of friends and yet he does seem to regularly be in relationships, he has children. Um, yeah. Is that, do you think that that speaks to anything about his personality? Again, I think it goes back to this idea of, of, of manipulation and particularly manipulation of, of women. It seemed that... that you know, we heard today that he sent, um, you know, a dozen ro- red roses to one of the female partners at a law firm where he had some, you know, he was engaged in some sort of business. Um, and it is this glimpse that this is a kind of aloof and, and difficult to understand man, but he does sort of turn it on whenever he needs to sort of charm women. And look, a lot of the times it, did, it didn't work, but, but you know, we know that he, he ran a business for six years, this sort of so-called spiritual healing business where he was you know, from what we've been told, regularly sexually assaulting women, um, often kind of coercing or talking them into letting him have sex with them. So, you're right, it does, it does kind of emerge as a, as a bit of a paradox how this man can be regarded as a bit unusual, a bit of a weirdo, and yet seems to have been able to kind of win over women, you know, be able to charm women, you know, at, at different points in his life. And Michael, you have um, this poem that I think actually illustrates perhaps some of the ways in which Monis used to um, interact with women. Uh, you Would it be fair to call these love poems? Some of them. Some of them are love poems, yeah. Uh, maybe you could read one for sure. us. Sure. Okay, this one's called uh, Favourite Home and these have apparently been translated from Farsi by the uh, police. I don't know if they're any better in Farsi than they are in English. Um, he says, this one goes, At the end we finally reached each other. I have tasted all the bitter things. You didn't come towards me but you were sitting down. You told me you were always with me, even though you were somewhere else. We shook hands and we promised each other. And that's the end of it. And I'm sh- I Look, I don't know if it's better in translation, but we were told on the first day that uh, his poems were assessed as ranging from mixed quality to bad. And I think that was probably one of the bad ones. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the kind of striking things about his family life that we heard today was that his former partner said that, you know, they got together in mid-2002 um, and she said that, well, she told one of the social workers that by mid-2007, he had seemed to have undergone some sort of transformation in his faith and he was, um, suddenly became very strict about his, uh, strict about his, his religion, um, began to dress in the clerical robes more regularly. He asked her to start wearing a veil. Uh, he told the kids, uh, he said that the kids shouldn't mix with, with non-Muslim kids anymore. And so you kind of wonder what happened in 2007 um, and, you know, what connection? I mean, was that the beginning of, of whatever ro- of the road that ended in, at Martin Place last year? Are we going to see at any point um, more personal materials from Monis that can start to build, fill in some of the details that are missing in this? You know, it's interesting because the more we get, honestly, it raises more questions than it ever, it ever answers. I mean, l- last week we heard on Thursday um, letters uh, that Monis had received from his daughters um, in Iran saying, you know, Dad, we miss you, you know, when can we see you, you know, all, all I want one of his daughters wrote to him, all I want to do is be near you, you know, I promise you I won't interfere in your personal life, um, that this was a guy who, who people loved, who kind of had, you know, had, had, he had family, but it seems that even to them, he was this kind of distant, inscrutable figure that no one could really, um, no one could really understand, um, and, you know, we, we hear a little bit about, um, you know, I've, I've got in front of me here the sort of, uh, one of the investigation files from the police, and there's an interesting detail in it. It's that um, uh, Monis met his former partner in 2002. 
they had a wedding ceremony in August 2003, but they weren't actually married. And that was because, um, I'll read it out to you. It said, uh, Monis avoided registering his marriage by stating he'd forgotten his driver's license. <laughs> so this was a guy who, who turned up to his wedding or, you know, just basically avoided having his wedding formally registered. And, and yet, you know, this relationship continued up until 2011. So it's... It's a tough thing to understand. And I believe that um, it was at, it was at the point where their house was raided, he, he and his former partner's house was raided, that she. it was only then she discovered his true age and the, the other names that he... Exactly. The other aliases yeah. that he had gone under. I think he was, he was something like 39, but told her he was in his late 20s when they met. So, yeah, I mean, how, how you get or how you can marry someone and be with them for nine years... Before this comes out, um, yeah, it's 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 really confusing. But you know, for the rest of the week, we're going to be hearing. We heard today from Monis's um, some of his associates. I, I don't know what associates means. I don't know if that's his friends or or kind of housemates. But hopefully, by the end of the week um, and by the end of this this sort of two week segment focusing on Monis's biography, we'll have you know a better idea of who this guy was. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com/audio.